Okay. Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, special episode today in that we've got uh, a couple of guests, one familiar to the audience, one brand new, um, Bob Greenlee, who uh, our listeners are familiar with. Bob is the CEO of Tusk Holdings and a frequent collaborator. Um, and Erica Tanner, who's at Tusk Strategies, and is this is your first podcast ever. It is. Very excited to Wait, be here. Wait, do you listen to podcasts? I'm sorry, this is Hugo. I'm going to yeah, jump fine. in. Hugo's here, too. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just here, too. I do. I listen to Firewall. Oh, okay. I as, also, as does everyone. I am <laughs> a world. sucker yes. for true crime podcasts. Oh, yeah. So. There's a lot. My, Harper and Abby like this, too. Um, so what we're going to do today, I, I, I mentioned this in a previous podcast or two, so kind of astute listeners will, will know already, but um, we put together, and one of the reasons I asked Bob and Erica to, to join me is they were really instrumental in, in helping write this, um, our thoughts on, like, how do you regulate the metaverse? So, like, we know it's coming, and... And Eric and I were just talking about this like a second ago in an op-ed we're working on, which was like, here's the normal playbook. A tech company comes up with a really cool, interesting idea, and then they kind of go out, they introduce it, they get product market fit, they get customers, then the regulators say, oh, what is this? And then it's pretty easy for someone like me to be like, I'll, you know, I'll beat you every fucking time at this point, because once the genie's out of the bottle, you know, we have money, we have customers, we have fans, and like, we can win which is good for my portfolio companies, um, and I think good for innovation overall, but um, in terms of thoughtful, sensible regulation, you know, we know the metaverse is coming, we know it's at most a couple years away, in some ways it's already even here, um, and we know the issues that are gonna be a problem because they're not entirely new issues, they're just the same issues applied in different ways. So our thought was, let's at least get the ball rolling. Let's write a memo. It's a long, it's, it's, you can catch it on bradleytouch.com or on Mirror. Um, it's 20 pages, 6,000 words. It's a long memo. But the idea was to lay out, if you were to thoughtfully regulate the metaverse, what are all the issues that you would have to think about, understand, uh, and everything else. And so that was, that was the point of the memo. And this is the first of what might be a couple of podcasts on this. Um, but thought I would just kind of get the, uh, the, the, the two key collaborators together with me and, and let's sort of get the ball rolling on it. So, Hugo, I'll turn it over to you to talk, interview us, I guess. Okay, yeah, I'll sort of be the moderator. Um, I guess the place to start is just with the definition. What I want to do is I want to ask Bradley to define the metaverse as best he can, and then Bob and, and Erica, you guys correct him, um, argue with him, or just otherwise add to his definition if you would. So, Bradley, why don't you just yeah. start with... So, the first thing is there's clearly no right or wrong answer to this question, so it's really just how you see it. In my mind, the metaverse is a combination of Internet 2.0, which just means the Internet as we know it today, the Internet of Things, so that's the sort of Internet that connects your refrigerator, your dishwasher, your car, all that stuff, um, augmented reality, virtual reality, cryptocurrency slash NFTs. And I think all that gets put into one platform where you could effectively do anything, experience anything, buy anything, and it's a much more 3D sensory experience where you see yourself physically inside of the metaverse. And you're, so if you're watching a game, you're not just sort of passively watching it, you're sitting in the stadium or you're floating on a UFO at over the 50 yard line or whatever it is, but it's much, much more immersive. So that, that would be my definition. I mean, Bob and Erica, is, is that how you guys think of it too? For me, at least like sort of, sort of. Um, here's what I, I, I start where you do. It's like, what do you, what is different from the internet today that we have? And I would say for me, it's, it's a lot of that, but it's like three things that I think of that are like slightly different. One is it's more immersive. 
like you said, so it's more of a 3D experience. You have more of yourself going in and more of the rest of it coming out. Um, it's more permanent, right? So the internet is is there, but the internet can come it can go. The, the idea of the metaverse is it's something that's like sticking around and it's it has some permanency. And it's like, it's tied to, there's some relationship for me to the real world, right? So it's not that it's like, you know, you have an internet or like an animal crossing or Pokemon, which is like cool and all, but there's no real relationship to the world. The metaverse has some, some negotiable relationship to the physical world. In, that's in that's that our online, it will resemble the physical world in some ways, and there will be property ownership like there is in the physical world. In that, yeah, like to me, the the metaverse is more interesting to the extent that you have you're able to take more of the physical world in with you. So, like in the internet, obviously you have a persona. The metaverse, you can take your whole body and arguably also theoretically your stuff too, right? Like I would like to have in the metaverse, I would like to have my house there. And more importantly, I'd like to make sure that somebody else doesn't stick their house where my house is supposed to be, right? But what do you mean your house, Bob? Like you you still have your house, obviously. So what what's the... What's the what's your house in the metaverse? Do you need a house? I mean, can't you just wander around in the woods or whatever the equivalent of the woods are in the metaverse? Yeah, I mean, theoretically, you certainly can, but you could also theoretically have your space, right? right? And, you know, I, theoretically, meta will have a meta place for you and they will want you to have your house, right? And more importantly than your house, let's say that it's not just about Facebook or Meta or whatever, but it's about like Nextdoor and people care about what's local. You're going to want to have a metaverse version of your block where you have people there. And I would want my block to be like my block personally. Like I'd like to know who's who's around locally, physically. Like a, as well weren't as there the, like some shootings on your block during like George Floyd? No, well, your house got shot. Your yeah. house, in fact, your house got, got shot. My house has been so, shot. And yet you're still yes, saying you want your block. Shot. All right. Yeah, yeah, we're going to jump, let Erica jump in yeah, here because she's been nodding and I feel like she has something to yeah, add. Yeah, so I would also emphasize the decentralized nature of the metaverse. I think this is really crucial. And you see it in emerging technologies that already exist today, especially blockchain. And the opportunity for the metaverse to sort of be an answer to traditional institutions that have left people behind banks, religion, Bradley, I know that's big for you. Yep. Um, other institutions that could be made better and that could really speak to people who have been left out. I mean, I did some research on this and I found that the average crypto trader actually doesn't have a college degree. 44% are non-white, 41% are women. So that says a lot so for, it, op it opens up people. opportunities. So in totally. a weird way, all of the, the kind of patriarchy and all of the traditional institutions of society that kind of reinforce kind of social norms and, and roles and, and wealth and everything else, you think had the chance to be upended on the metaverse. Totally. Now, how do you think, now, one of the, one of the key aspects of this that you address in the, in the memo is the idea of, like, there's obviously not one metaverse. There's, like, potentially a limitless amount of metaverses. Maybe we'll start with you, Erica, since since um, you you were the last to go on the on the first round. What's the explain that if you would? So so there'll be a metaverse like you wake up in the morning, you join Bob's neighborhood metaverse, or you join 
Bradley's fantasy baseball metaverse, or how does that work? What's the, or how do you th- how do you see it working, even just in a kind of speculative way? It's hard to say, but I would imagine it would be something similar to how social media platforms exist today. Mm -hmm. You would be able to go through, as you do now, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and these would all have their own metaverses. Similarly, it might be easier to think about industries that could have their own metaverses, Um, a banking industry, religion, as we mentioned, schools, uh, governmental sectors can have their own metaverses where people could come to interact with one another. Because I would stay away from any government metaverse just as a rule if I could. Well, but, but you know, but Bob, I'd have to go in Bob the... laid out like an interesting uh, idea in the memo around uh, FAA and airspace and everything else in which the government, you, you would actually want them to have metaverse. Bob, do you want to explain what, what you th- were thinking there? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the government, I mean, everybody has their own beliefs about the proper role of government and all that. But one thing that is useful in government is just having somebody who coordinates what, you know, a bunch of moving actors. And one of the things that you would want is, so I, one thing I laid out is like airspace. You need to know all the planes that are in the air at one time. And it's great to have a metaverse for that because rather than having ATC, who's, you know, giving a bunch of destined, you know, kind of a bunch of graphical coordinates, you can actually then physically see or physically identify where in space everybody is at a like at a real-time basis. And that helps everybody, not just when there's a limited number of airplanes in the space, but when you have the EV tolls, the air taxis, you have a, a larger number of drones, there is a lot more air traffic in the future. I mean, maybe not full-on Jetsons, but a lot. And if that's the case, having the ability to visualize it in a quote metaverse sort of way makes it a lot easier for people to understand threats and to keep things coordinated. And for that, I, lo- I love a government metaverse. And what are you guys, Eric and Bob, because both of you sort of have worked in government a lot and think about this a lot. If, if someone said, okay, you can move five government functions or services onto the metaverse that would really make a difference, what would be on your list? Erica, you go first. I think definitely <laughs> top of the list. Off. Yeah. Yeah. delivering some sort of social services. Bradley knows I'm a big proponent of cash relief. Yep. I could imagine this being a really great space for that. It's already being done in certain ways on the blockchain. So I think... Could you explain that? What do you mean it's being done on the blockchain? How does that, like, aid is being distributed via the blockchain to... Correct. To to who? To people who need it. So I think actually one of our clients helped in a pilot program here um, abroad to give cash relief through the blockchain to individuals who needed money during the pandemic. Okay. And so it was a secure way of sharing the money with Mm -hmm. people. Who needed it? Yeah, and and also if you think about universal basic income, which is something that Eric and I both favor, and by, by the way, why both of us sort of were very pro Andrew Yang for for mayor. Um, the biggest concern that I have about UBI is if it goes the traditional route of from our tax dollars into the government and then back out to the people who need it, like some huge percentage, thirty percent, fifty percent, will kind of get frittered away on ancillary stuff. Whereas you can envision in the metaverse, especially the mechanism for direct wealth transfer that I think would do a lot more good. And what do you think? That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, and there's the concept of a safe contract, right? Mm -hmm. Where people can share money. I think this is huge in respect to workers' rights. Um, So 
it's been discussed in terms of sex workers, for example. Mm -hmm. They can use a safe contract to get their money um, and not get stiffed out of what they were owed. And we see this in other industries, home cleaners, undocumented workers. That's not necessarily a government service, but it's one along those lines that I think would made would be made better by the metaverse. Bob, what, what's your biggest concern about when, when, when we were working on this memo and we went through all of this stuff? Was it just the national security stuff was the scariest to you or is it things more like data operability and portability and that kind of things? So what I would be most scared about, two things. One is capture, right? I mean, that's why I'm like very tied to the multiple metaverses idea. If there is one gatekeeper there that is the one way into the metaverse that we've seen way too much in, you know, whatever they call it, the web 2.0, but the FANG universe, um, that, that scares me a lot. I think it should scare government a lot. If there's an idea here, you have to be able to have your portability of all your personal data. Because if you can't port your data and port it privately, then you're really captured for what is gonna be a really big part of people's lives with one gatekeeper who can manage their, you know, what they think of as the right amount of speech or information about what you can and can't say and can and can't do. So that's that to me is super scary. Can we can we stay on that um, one for a second? Guess, I'm sorry, Bob, because I think it's a pretty yeah. a pretty awesome and complicated yeah, yeah. issue. Like, where are we right now in terms of like even dealing with the social media platforms and the portability of your own data? Like, what has to be like we we can't deal with it on what's a, I mean a fairly limited spectrum of 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 offerings, right? So yeah, well, that's again that gets to the whole point we're making, which right. is. If you just leave the metaverse for Microsoft and Apple and Facebook to figure out and do, they will design it in the ways that maximize their right. profits, by the way, as they should. They're corporations. That's their job, right? right? Um, but if we don't want to be in that situation again, we're effectively we're dependent on these gatekeepers and regulating them is incredibly hard because they're so powerful. Right. Um, this is the opportunity to kind of lay out the rules beforehand. At least that's how I see So it. are there some steps we can see, some practical steps like on the data portability issue specifically that we can do now? There are. I mean, the biggest thing that people can do is to get a really solid group of laws in effect that say these are your rights. This is this is your rights to your data and everyone needs to respect them because the one thing that the metaverse is going to have is more of your data. Right, the more of you are that is physically in there, the more of your data is in there, and the more you need to have your rights. Not just, you know, right now the privacy rights are better than they were, but still really weak. I mean, you have the right to remove your data and to know when people are processing. You don't really have a meaningful right to stop people from processing, and you certainly don't own or have an effective way to monetize your data yet. So, it's. That's where I'm super scared because ultimately you're butting up against right to privacy, which is, as we know, an issue right now that is, um, it is at the cutting edge of what the Supreme Court is thinking about. Like, what are the real parameters of that right? Because privacy hits choice, hits politics really quickly. I would also add, you know, it would be good to remember that European countries have somehow figured this out, or at least gotten a lot closer to an ideal standard than the United States has. Whether it's the EU with the GDPR, the UK has their own privacy uh, and data ownership standards, 
France has, I think Germany has their own independent laws. And I don't know if you remember, but a few years ago, Ro Khanna, the Congress member in California, introduced a universal bill of rights for the internet. Yep. I don't even think that thing ever got passed. So why no, is nothing it? Nothing gets passed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Did I you mean, like that some... that that legislation? Did you think it was a good? It's framework? a symbolic step. Yes, right. I think we need to start with here are our rights. Here's what we believe. Here's what we stand for. And then the safe the safeguards and the all of the other protocols will follow. That does sound vaguely constitutional, though. I mean, a, a statement of rights. Yeah, well, I mean, if you think about this from a super conceptual standpoint, we are creating a new world that, yes, it's a, it's a digital manifestation of the physical world that we live in today, but in many ways, because it is so immersive, um, it, it really does become its own new world, which will both mean people need to be protected, and, and we should get into topics of like consumer protection. Um, and at the same time, uh, we also have to have laws to regulate kind of how people interact with each other and, and what rights you have and what rights you don't have. It, it seems to me that one of the really tricky ways of thinking about the metaverse is like, will we even really be ourselves in some metaverses? Won't the whole point to be kind of inventing different identities and personas? Um, and then what, how does that run into like actual issues of rights or, uh, you know, it's, it's not like we'll just be like, oh, I'm a 60 year old guy in the metaverse. Like, no, I'm an 18 year old punk rocker. Like, you know, like we now know what Hugo's avatar is going to be. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I don't think it'll be that <laughs> pathetic. I hope, but maybe I, I generalize, but, but like the, um, the, the point is, is like what, will that be legal? I mean, of course it'll be legal, right? I mean, people are already pretending to be them, not themselves online. This yeah. will just multiply the opportunities for that, no? Yeah, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. <laughs> I would. Or maybe everyone knows. I mean, this is for me, go ahead. It, this is tough, right? Because there's three things, right? There's the core of what is you, right? right? And that's your, like, your identity and your stuff. And that, that clearly has like real privacy rights, right? It's right to your identity. Then there's the, you have the right to speech, right? And to ownership of your stuff which is um, intellectual property rights, and then you have property rights, right? And you have the right to own certain things, things that you create, but also things that right. you buy. And those rights are gonna start to get conflated in the metaphor, right? Who you are, what you do, and your rights, your, your creations, and then the rights to your stuff start to all bleed together in ways that are gonna be really hard to disentangle. To go back to your question yeah. though, I would say the biggest concern there is the psychic implications. Like, can you imagine living in the squalor of public housing and then going into your metaverse and having a mansion and then coming back to your public housing afterwards? Like, Is that better or worse? I think it would be worse. We're, that, that would probably cause some psychic dissonance in some people. And maybe like the likes of AOC would say that would be like the road to class warfare. But I think we really need to think about like how this is going to affect the way people experience their real world. I mean, in a sense, that already happens, right? I mean, in, in, a, in a more limited way than what you're talking about. But like, you know, when you're on Instagram you're, and you're presenting you know, the pictures of your life and who you want the world to see, you're not showing them your dirty toilet and your terrible, ugly kitchen and your, you know, like... But there must be some people who do that yeah, on purpose. Yeah, yeah, no, there are. Right? That's yeah. different. That's the 18-year-old punk rockers. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, let's talk about... I, I guess I'd like to go... I wish you couldn't hear what the other person says because it'll, it'll affect you. But I want to get an answer from each of you of, like, what aspect of the metaverse 
really excites you, like you want that in your life, and which aspects of it are kind of scary or, or things that you like fear for your children um, or, or fear for the sort of well-being of the, you know, of the world. So why don't, we, why don't we start with you, Erica, and then we'll, we'll move to Bob, and then Bradley has to, has to answer last. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, and they'll take all the good stuff. From yeah, exactly. Well, You're going to have to think hard. Yeah, let's just be clear. <laughs> well, I'm going to start with stating the obvious. It's cool. Like, right. it has so much potential. We don't know what it is yet. There's I, Every time a new technology comes out, except maybe the latest, like, iOS software, there's a level of excitement. But this feels different. Right. Like, there's hype. There's sort of a phenomenon around what is this thing? What does it mean? I don't think people were doing, like, podcasts and writing memos on the policy implications of the iPhone, although maybe they should have been. They probably should have, yeah. <laughs> um, so I would start by just saying it's cool. There's a lot of excitement just in that fact alone. In terms of concerns, I think the biggest for me is safety. Um, we really need to worry about, as we were talking earlier, um, putting some guardrails in place to make sure people are safe as they navigate this new world. So for example, I could think of how this would be extremely helpful in terms of like education. Right. It could be a great tool. Imagine like a high schooler being transported into another country to interact with some with another student. That's like an experience they couldn't get from just having a pen pal. Mm -hmm. But now imagine that gets hacked, that very system, and all of a sudden they're transported into the Holocaust. Like, there's so much opportunity here for things to go wrong, mm -hmm. and I think we really need to establish some guardrails, starting with things like a Bill of Rights or um, asking companies to state how are they going to keep people safe when they create this new world. Bob, you're, you're up. Things you're most excited about and the, yeah, the aspect I'm, of it that, that you have the most fear or for sense of foreboding about. So I'm, I am more foreboding than excitement, to be perfectly honest. Um, I'm most excited about creativity. I mean, the, the ability to be visually creative and immersively creative is, is something that's beyond even something that I could imagine. And I look at that as, as a really beautiful opportunity for my kids and others to really do interesting things beyond what I could have ever done. Um, what am I scared about? Uh, everything that is a problem with content moderation right now on the internet is going to be 10x that problem. And I, I really don't think we have gotten right who gets to be the ultimate arbiter and the ultimate judge of what effective uh, moderation is. So that like that frightens me because that's an issue we haven't solved and it's just going to get worse. I'm also scared because my kids, my kids spend way too much time on screens as it is. The idea that they're going to be spending, you know, five x times doing this, if that were even physically possible, <laughs> right, four hours in a day. I mean, I, I would say that my hope and fear is kind of two sides of the same coin, right? So okay. We live in a world right now that we know statistically, in many ways, is the best it's ever been. So you look at metrics like uh, infant mortality, life expectancy, literacy, um, you know, poverty, all that other stuff, and the world's like extremely better than it's ever been. And yet, the world feels terrible, right? Um, and so it, there is this, you know, Erica talked about cognitive dissonance before. There is this cognitive dissonance, and I think there's a lot of people, especially like in this country, if you think about the Trump phenomenon, where compared to the average standard of living in the world, the average Trump voter is doing pretty well, right? They're, you know, maybe not as well as they'd like to do, but because of the internet, um, 
they're more noticed what they don't have than what they do have, and that creates feelings uh, of resentment, which ultimately leads to populist political movements on both sides of the aisle that become very dangerous uh, to our rights, to public safety. So there's two ways to look at this. One would be it'll be much better, right, because, like, you can offer people better experiences. You know, it'll be more fun, you know, if, if you want to you know, take some stuff I work on, like gambling, right? Um, you could physically go into, like, the coolest casino ever now um, and experience it and enjoy it um, in a way that you probably couldn't afford to uh, if, if you just were a regular person living in the middle of the country. Or religion, you can find now the community that really feels comfortable to you in terms of the parishioners, in terms of the clergy, in terms of the ideology, or you could form something new uh, with like-minded people or new religions in, entirely, right? I mean, there's, there's all kinds of ways to go about it. So, or, you know, I, in the memo, I kind of made the case that the one thing that everybody will support would be moving the DMV onto the metaverse, right? If no one ever had to physically go to the DMV again and you could do all of your business with them, uh, online and through the metaverse, people would certainly like that. But at the same time, to Bob's point, this could also make everything exponentially worse, right? So one one view would say, look at all the things we can give people that they don't have right now, we can make their lives better. And I think that's true. The other one would say, um, we will live in a world where we see what we don't have vastly more than any other time, and inequality and resentment in some ways will be greater than ever, and we're already sort of a society tearing at the fringes around class, around wealth, things like that. Uh, you could see a world where the revolution comes, you know, with, with inside of the metaverse or because of the metaverse, right? Yep. Well, it does. It does strike me that the, there's a very powerful, uh, or there are powerful forces that will encourage people to self-segregate on the on the metaverse as well, right? I mean, if 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 all the the wealthiest people in this country congregate or a lot of them in the Hamptons or in parts of California or parts of Florida, um, won't they just do the same things in the metaverse? What what makes the metaverse sort of actually public in a meaningful way? I mean, how and how will government have any say in that? And you know, I don't think in the internet that I think the internet has still been a democratizer. I mean, yes, probably demographically, certain platforms skew more wealthy, but some of the like wealthy only social platforms, like it's a, like a small world, for example, those blew up. I mean, people need the metaverse and the internet more generally needs volume. It needs, you know, scale and network effects to really work. So I'm not, I'm not certain that people will close themselves mm -hmm. off that way. I'm just concerned that people won't control themselves and will we'll do the same awful things that we see here, just more so. Do, Bradley or, or Erica, do you have a different view yeah, of that? No, no, I, I, th I think just, look, there's, there's a real challenge when it comes to government regulation about kind of what the appropriate role of government is. So I, I would say where Eric and Bob and I are probably all relatively similar from this perspective is, uh, I think we would all say there's a need for government, there are things that government does really well, there are things that government should be, ways that government should be expanded, um, but government is not the solution to every problem. Government is not capable of, of fixing every issue, and it has its limitations as well, right? And, and I think, in some ways, figuring out what those core competencies are and those core weaknesses, so like when we were talking before about universal basic income, um, I don't believe that the government should really play, other than creating the, the law itself, 
a role in the wealth transfer because I think the government will effectively steal a lot of money that could be better used to help people directly. Um, but at the same time, you know, we spend huge amounts of time here working on expanding universal school meals um, because that's a program the government does offer very effectively. So I feel like we barely even now understand what government does well and what the government doesn't do well, even if you're not totally ideological. Um, and now you got to put it into a whole new realm that's sort of metaphysical, and it's just going to get that much harder. Well, that that's that leads naturally to my next question: Is does government, as we know it, have the talent and sophistication to to do this? I mean, it, it, like like we're 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 talking about a whole. I mean, we don't a we don't even know what it is, but 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 beyond that, like. I mean, here in New York City, there are basic sort of city functions that are at a, I don't know if it's certainly not an all-time low, but at a, you know, operating at a very poor level. The subway's a mess. Um, things are not functioning that well. What makes us think that, like, our government sort of agencies are up to the task of, like, moving into this entirely new world? I think it's going to take political will, right? Very often, government just resigns itself to saying, well, we don't understand that. We don't know that. It's up to the companies. They need to figure it out, and nothing gets done. Right. Um, I care a lot about workers' rights, and I think a great example here is something like um, portable benefits for the gig economy. Mm -hmm. For so long, we had the solution right at our fingertips, which is just creating a system that allows for people in the sharing economy and other independent contractors to draw down from a portable benefit system. Social Security itself is a portable benefit. My 401k is a portable benefit. And yet because, oh, it's Uber and it's DoorDash and it's all these gig companies and we're politicians, we don't really understand how to regulate that or we're coming up against very real lobbying interests, which is legitimate, but they couldn't figure out any state that has tried how to properly regulate this so that we extend rights to workers. And that's a failure of will, you think? Will creativity? Experience. Yeah. yeah I, I, in fact, I would say so on the on the port. You know, we work a lot on this particular issue and think a lot about it. Right. So on the portable benefits issue and the worker classification issue more broadly, I would say the problem is you have two sides who, for them, it's all or nothing, right? So if you're Uber, you really, really want your drivers to be independent contractors because you truly believe that it will increase your operating costs, they say, by 20%. This is a company that barely makes any money to begin with. Their margins are really low. This puts it completely underwater. If you're the unions, you want everyone to be W-2 workers. That's the only way that you can organize them and then collect dues from them, right? right? And the reality is the system that Erica is laying out, which gives people both the flexibility of an independent contractor and the benefits of a W-2 employee, um, is really not to the benefit specifically of the companies or to the unions. Um, it would be to the workers, but of course they don't really have mm -hmm. that much of a voice um, in this process. So there's obviously a lot of different ways this conversation go. It might be a good place to leave it for now and return to. Um, it, Bradley, do you want to say a last word or word, maybe say a little bit more about the memo that people can read? Yeah, a few things. So one is, look, we try to be really creative and put everything that we could think of in there, um, but by no means is what we wrote the entirety of it. So, um, you know, I, I'm always encouraging listeners to reach out to us. If, if you take a look at it and you say, hey, what about this, what about that? please email us, please let us know, because we can expand this into whatever it is. So that's that's number one. Um, number two is kind of what comes next, right? So we hopefully did a good job sparking a conversation, raising questions, all of that. But ultimately, 
uh, until elected officials feel political pressure to take action on this, they will do what they do on everything, which is they will avoid any kind of hard decision every chance that they get. Um, and so that as you think about it, I think that our listeners are people who probably do have more access to their elected officials than, than the average person. Um, they're only going to know about this if, if you put it to them and you ask them what they're doing about it. You put pressure on them. Otherwise, we'll all say we ought to do something um, and nothing will happen. And then a, a third point I wanted to make when response to what Eric was saying, which is, we, we already have this problem where there should be times in government where we pay people exponentially more money than they are allowed to make right now because we need to attract the talent, right? People at the IRS who are much better at figuring out how to prevent tax loopholes, uh, attorneys, you know, I've done a ton of work on state lotteries, and part of the problem is given the salaries that state lotteries can pay, it's hard to attract really, really great gaming or consumer product talent to those businesses. Um, you are really going to need that for the metaverse. Um, so in some ways, the first thing of political will is to say, yes, when this person is making $800,000 a year paid for by the taxpayers, you know, some editorial board is going to go berserk and you're going to be criticized for it. But um, there's no way that you're going to have the talent to figure this thing out um, if you can't access the private sector and, and you've got to be at least somewhat competitive to do that. So, all right, well, let's let's do this. As Hugo said, we've probably talked enough for now, but um, we're going to pick this up in different ways because we didn't even really delve that deep into all the different specific topics. Uh, Why don't you mention some of the ones? There's, there's taxes. We talked a little bit about worker classification, but we just kind of scratched Consumer the surface protection, of that. Consumer protection, we didn't Consumer get into at all. Uh, national security, we didn't get into at all. Uh, we talked about you know privacy and data portability to a certain extent, um, but who owns what is a much deeper question, as well as your rights of free speech um, in the metaverse. How far does that extend? Um, government services, how will things be provided? Um, all of that changes. So protection of children too is a theme for, of the for of sure. The, of yeah, the, of I the mean, memo. It's not something there's really so many yet. ways. And look, it may be that um, the people working on the memo or a bunch of us at least have kind of kids who are online and therefore we see the harms of it and we're particularly focused on it. Um, but yeah, absolutely. So there are so many different angles. So, so what I would just say is is if you found this podcast at all interesting, check out the memo if, if you can. Let us know what you think uh, and we'd love to talk more about it. Great. All right, cool. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.